How are we doing? Very good. My name's Josh. I'm on the teaching team, and I get to talk today about marriage. And I'm going to do something on the front end that I don't really do. I'm going to tell you how I want this sermon to feel on the front end, and there's a reason for that. The New Testament, when it talks about the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word, there's usually three Greek words that get used. And one of those is kerygma. And kerygma is essentially what God wants the message to feel like. What does God want this moment to feel like? Way more than I think what we're used to when we want to hear God's word is uh, there are true things being said in this passage here. I want the true things now and here and then communicated so that your brain can take true things into your brain and do as they wish. Rather, kerygma is God is in this moment and he's using his word to do something in this place for us. That's what's going on right now. The kerygma is what God's trying to do, what he wants it to feel like. Why do I bring that up? Because everybody has an opinion on marriage. And everybody speaks about marriage all the time. Some have a negative sort of bend on it. Some have an overly optimistic. I think of the high schoolers I deal with. There's an optimism there that hasn't hit reality yet, and they're going to face what they're going to face that we all face. But Paul is not living too negatively or too positively, too optimistic. He's living in the sweet spot. He is living in this kerygma. God is going to do big things in marriage. And there's a visual I want to show you to kind of describe this. Here's my boys, two of my four boys, Sweet Roman and Sweet Jude. Yesterday was fall season kickoff. Saturdays are no moss for the Watt family. We are doing sports every day, all day on Saturday. And we had our first baseball game tomorrow. And Jude, my third boy, number nine, is a stud. And he knows it. He just has this confidence. So I played baseball, but as I look back on me playing baseball, there's a, there's a theme I've, I've just noticed, especially offensively when you're hitting. I was always mostly afraid of striking out. So I got into the batter's box, and the thing driving my attention was, don't strike out. I would never articulate, but as I look back, I was fearful of what might happen, namely a strikeout. Jude gets his 19-pound body into the batter's box, and all he thinks about is hitting home runs every swing, every about. He just wants to mash, he says. Why do I bring that up? Paul is swinging for the fences as he talks about marriage. Some of you are going to have some kind of rough marriages you're in right now or past marriages, and you're going to have issues that you want addressed. That's not what Paul's doing in this message particularly. There's other areas of the Bible where he talks about the nitty-gritty, but Paul right here is swinging for the fences in marriage, and he's showing us this is what marriage is. He's going big. What exactly is Paul talking about? There's two things he threads through this message. Here's the first one. Marriage being the union of husband and wife. So Luke taught last week. I'm going to teach the same verses Luke taught. Luke's focus last week was on that, husband and wife. But throughout this entire passage here, Paul is also talking about this. I'll call it all caps marriage. The union of Christ and his church, or Jesus and his bride. And he kind of interweaves these together throughout this Ephesians passage. And he swings hard. He's swinging big because marriage is a big deal. He is swinging for the fences. Where do I get this idea that marriage is about Christ and the church? Let's just walk through. I just want to show you my homework on the front end, and then we'll walk through the passage. 
Here's the first time I see it. Verse 23 says, the husband is the head of the wife, so husband, wife, lowercase marriage, just as Christ is the head of the church, all caps marriage, his body and is himself the Savior. So we're talking about little marriage and big marriage in this passage. Next one. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, lowercase marriage, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, all caps marriage. Next one. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Jesus cherishes his church, so husbands should cherish their brides. And then finally, this mystery is profound. And I am saying, what mystery? This union of man and wife. But Paul says, I'm saying it refers actually to Christ and the church. Paul has big hopes for this passage. He's dreaming big. And here's why I think we should listen. This imagery of marriage is probably the dominant theme of what it means to be a Christian in the New Testament and maybe across the whole Bible. And I think a lot of us get stuck with images that aren't wrong but don't give us the full picture, the imagery of Jesus as Savior. Is that true? Absolutely. Did Jesus save us from our sins? Absolutely. But if you stop there, you miss stuff. Or what about God as our Father? God is a providing, loving, caring Father. Is that true? Absolutely. But if you stop there, what do you miss? You miss marriage. What is marriage at its core? Marriage, and let's just get to the, the details. A sexual union between a husband and a wife is two flesh, different flesh, coming together to become one. That's what Paul's talking about. Husband, wives becoming one, just as Jesus and the church are becoming one because of Jesus' loving, sustaining work on our behalf. That's what we're talking about today. This is no small task. We are talking about marriage, all caps. So we want God to be with us. Let's pray and ask God to walk us through this passage. Father, be with us. We love you. We don't fully understand this, this mystery of oneness with Christ. So help us to see it afresh this morning. Help us to see it for what it means for us as a church and for us as individuals in this room, God. We want to know you more and be more intimate with you. Be with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's all I'm doing in this passage. I ask the question of this passage, how does Jesus become one with his church? How does Jesus become one with this church? You could fill it out and fill in the blank. Jesus blanks his bride. And I became a Christian later on in life, not super late, but late enough to know that I was behind the game when it comes to knowing the Bible. So I always felt like I was playing catch-up. And I, 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 I have a lack of confidence sometimes as far as what I don't know about the Scripture. I know that's ironic because I'm teaching, but I get it. And oftentimes what I come back to is just the basics of, okay, this is a book, and I'm reading a book. How would I read a book? Oh, I just read sentence by sentence, and what's the thing that gives me the meaning? Usually in writing, it's the verbs that carry the action. So here's a Bible study tip. Read a passage and just camp out on the verbs and dwell on those. That's all we're going to do this morning. Jesus blanks his bride. There are seven verbs that it says of Jesus and his bride and how he makes oneness with them. Jesus is the initiator and sustainer of this oneness. How does he do it? We're going to walk through seven things in this passage here. So the first one is in verse 25 there. You should have your Bibles open. But verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved 
his church. The first thing we see is Jesus loves his bride. And I know that may sound like, well, duh, that's common sense. Uh, it's not. It's not a given that God would love us. And I wanted to flesh this out mainly for my own personal enjoyment, but for you guys as I teach this. Under each of these statements, I'm going to write a vow, a Jesus vow to his church to try to flesh out what that love is. So here's what I wrote. I loved you before you were attractive or even faithful. So Paul's talking about lowercase marriage, all caps marriage. The analogy works a lot of times, and then other times it completely derails. This is one of those instances, because I'm married to Aubrey because I spotted her from afar, and I pursued her with all her might because she was attractive. Physically, emotionally, relationally, in every way, she was attractive to me. That's not what we get as we go to the Bible to see how God relates to his people. Jesus loves. He is the initiator. His love starts the relationship. We see it in Ephesians. Don't go there. But Ephesians 1.5 says, in love, he predestined us. 2.5 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Christ's love is the initiator in this union of husband and wife. His love makes it happen. His love initiates it. Now, as I've dwelled on this, there's two camps that I want to address. Very different. One camp is that statement doesn't mean much to you because you assume God should love you. I'll call it American Christianity. Others, more harsh, would call it wrong. The Bible does not say there was a bunch of lovable people that Jesus spotted from afar and walked towards those lovable people. Some of you are in this room, and you may assume you're a Christian because of church attendance or something, but the general, if we got to the nitty-gritty of what's going on in your heart, deep down you just assume there's something lovable about you before a holy, righteous God of the Bible. And that is just not true. I have four sons. You just saw two of them. My oldest is third grade, reading a lot. And he asked me over the summer, hey, I want to start reading the Bible. I'm like, oh, great. Seems like what a pastor's kid should do. I'm glad we're on it. Let's go. And he said, but the Bible's too confusing, my ESV. So I looked up reading levels, and I got him the message, which is a paraphrase, but it's closest to his level. So he's reading through it. He's in the middle of Genesis somewhere. He has his bookmark. He sets it on his bunk bed when he's done. Elijah's going to be confronted with some harsh realities if he keeps reading that confront this very notion that there's something lovable about us. Namely, he's going to get to some prophets who are pretty intense. One of them's named Hosea. And pull, I pulled this out of the message. But as you open the book of Hosea, which is about a prophet who's talking about Israel and God in a marriage context, Hosea says this, the whole country has become a whorehouse. Dad, can you come here? What's a whorehouse? Ask your mother. The first time God spoke to Hosea, he said, find a whore and marry her. Make this whore the mother of your children. This is why. This whole country has become a whorehouse. Unfaithful to me, God. God's love is towards the whores if you read the Old Testament. And if we want to be honest with ourselves, we are in that camp just like Israel was. 
we were not attractive, and we were not faithful. Here's the other spectrum, which is kind of opposite. There's a lot of people who love the Bible, have spent a lot of time, who would call themselves Reformed or some version of some theological camp, who believe that God so loved the world that he gave his son. But when you dig down and say, does God love you? It's almost a question they don't even approach. God loves the world. But does he love James? I've never even asked that. God loves the, does he love me? Does he love you? Does he love us individually? And I would say absolutely 100% yes. And some of us would say, well, show me the verse. There is no verse that says Jesus loves Josh Watt or anybody in this room. That's not how you're going to arrive at the conclusion to the question, does Jesus love me? But you get into the word and you see very clear that Jesus loves his people. I kind of went through four things that I think get at this. The statements of Jesus he makes to people. I know the hairs on your head. That's a statement about love, about an individual, not a group. Jesus doesn't say, I know all the hairs in all the universe. I know your hair. I know how many grays you have, how many hairs you used to have. I know you. Jesus and his disciples is probably the biggest one for me. You watch Jesus interact with his disciples, and there's a general love for that group. And there's a very specific love, Peter, John. He addresses them as individuals often. I've got four sons, the Watt boys. I love the Watt boys, but if I never love Elijah, he's missing out on something deep. Jesus loves his disciples individually. The person of Jesus. If you just walk through the Gospels and slowly and watch Jesus interact. Here's, there's an uh, author, Paul Miller, who wrote a lot of books. One of them is Love Walked Among Us. And his whole premise is if you read the Gospels, here's what you see with Jesus and love. Love lands is what he says. Meaning love is not this generic feeling that kind of floats above us. Jesus in the person of Jesus lands his love on individuals. And he looks at people and he sees them. And he addresses them individually. His love lands always. And it lands in this room on followers of Christ. And he knows us. And the final thing, I think, is just this very passage, the idea of marriage. How do I know Jesus loves me? Because the image he wants me to go back to time and time again is one of marriage, husband and wife. Now, I get one guy after the first service said, I have a hard time with Jesus being the groom and me being the bride. Like, I get it. We're not talking about the nuts and bolts of maleness and femaleness. We're talking about the idea of two very different things coming together and becoming one. Jesus loves me. When I married Aubrey, she walked down the aisle. She comes into focus. And in that moment, all the other women in the universe fade. And now it's me and Aubrey. And that's the imagery we get from Jesus. Me and you. Does Jesus love you? Absolutely. Does he love you because you were lovable? Absolutely not. Because his love is so great, it overpowers your unfaithfulness and your unattractiveness. That's the first thing we see is Jesus loves his bride. Second thing we see is Jesus sacrifices for his bride. And I, I wrote a little vow for each of these. Here's the vow that I think gets to this. 
I lay down my life for you always, whether it costs me a few minutes of my time or even my death on a cross. And the thing I've been just appreciating about Jesus, I guess for lack of a better term, is that his death on the cross was not a one-time instance that he did like a soldier going off to war and fighting for us and then coming back, and he lives a completely different way than how he lived on that cross and died on that cross. His life with me and with us, the church, is the same life that was on the cross. It's a self-sacrificial, I have a will, Jesus says. He has a very strong will, emotions, mind. And he comes up against individuals who have a will and a mind and emotions, and both people have wants and desires. And here's what happens in every interaction with Jesus. He sacrifices his will for the good of his father and the good of others. Every time, whether it's, I need a few minutes. I mean, how many times does my wife not get my full attention? If there was a tally on the wall, I would be embarrassed to see it. My wife never is going to say that of Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I've really been thinking. I'm here. You got a lot of stuff going on. I'm here. Dialed in. He dies. His death on the cross was absolutely necessary for us to walk into relationship with him. It's the doorway. But it's also the pathway by which we walk. That's why Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. What's he saying in that? That we need to kind of flog ourselves in a sort of Roman Catholic way to be okay before a holy God? No. He's saying if you want to have any sort of loving relationship with anyone, especially the spouse that you're trying to be in union with, you have to die to yourself daily. Like Jesus does for his church, us in the room. That's a phenomenal truth. That God of the universe looks at my will and his will and he submits for me. Whether it's death on the cross or just time. A minute of his time. Here's the next thing we see. Jesus sanctifies her. Where do I see this in the passage? Uh, This is verse 26 now. He gave himself up for her, verse 26. Why did he give himself up for her? Not just to get her to heaven, but that he might sanctify her. What does that word sanctify mean? It's the word saint. He's taking us from sinners to saints. He's making us better than we were. He looks at his bride, he sees her, and he's not okay with where she's not okay, and he works to make her better. Here's the vow I put with this. Jesus is talking to me. I will be fiercely intentional to bring out the best in you and even turn the worst of you into good. Jesus is for us. That's it. Jesus is for you is a profound statement that I think we dismiss and forget and neglect so often. He's for us. He didn't just hand us a free heaven admission ticket and then walk off. He is with us in this moment, and he is for us, sanctifying us because we are his bride. He is making us better, and he knows that we are clumsy and awkward and silly. My youngest son, Ozzy, is nine months old, and I walk in. This happens the last six times I walk in the house. Aubrey's holding him. Ozzy, wave to Dad. Ozzy waved to dad. I know you could wave. Ozzy waved to dad. Not once 
Hazazi waved to me. (laughs) That wasn't a wave, babe. And I enjoy it. How much more does Jesus enjoy the process of sanctifying us? He doesn't look at our little stumbles and falls and just with piercing wrath every time. The wrath was taken care of on the cross. Like a mom and a dad who is cheering on a kid, trying to figure out how to just do the basic of life, lift his hand up. Jesus is for his bride, us the church. That's phenomenal truth. The next thing we see right on the heels of this here says, might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus cleanses her. That sanctification thing is all great, but if the filth and the dirt and the sin and the evil that we have still in our lives is still affecting our relationship, then we don't stand a chance. But he says, cleansed you, past tense, by the washing of the water with word. This was my favorite one to write because it's just sweet truth that it took me two decades to really realize. Jesus says, I will not hold anything against you ever. Like, how many spouses can say this? At the end of your time together, there's not a single instance where I held anything against you. Anybody want to raise their hand? Are you that one? No. And I'm the perpetrator of this in my marriage way more than my wife. She's way more forgiving and forgetful or some combination of the two. And I hold on to it. Not Jesus. Jesus cleanses, completely washes us away. How? By the washing of the water with the word. That's just an imagery of baptism. What's baptism symbolized? Us coming to faith in Jesus and we've been washed. All of our cleanse, completely gone. He washes it away. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. The sin is no more. Whether it's, you just can't get out of like this. In my family, it's, I'm always Josh, the brother, the knucklehead, the kid who pooped his pants in preschool. Like, I just can't escape that reality. Or if it's something bigger, like real substantial sin against your spouse or your kids earthly reflections of Jesus have a hard time doing what Jesus does perfectly, and that's, I will not hold it against you ever. It's not a human's job to do that. Jesus does it for us. He does not hold anything against us ever. He cleanses, completely washes away. There's a passage in Romans. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's one of the first passages I heard as a Christian. I remember the first time it sunk in, like, oh, that's what that means. I was reading a magazine, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and it was a story, a sad story about a man who worked for FCA who got saved back in the day out of drug use and addiction and then started serving his community, spent a couple decades pouring into the athletes of his area and then went back to his addiction and he died. And the headline was, there is no condemnation. And that's the first time I thought, wow, that had better be true. Because I'm not going on a bender, but I'm going to do something dumb for sure. And there better be no condemnation for me as the bride of Christ. And it's absolutely a thousand percent true. 
Here's the next thing we see. Jesus will present his bride. Where do we see that? Verse 27. This is a beautiful poetic part of the story. It says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. God has a future for us as his bride. God will present us one day. What are we going to look like on that day? Here's the best I could come up with if Jesus were to make a vow. I will make you almost unrecognizably new and still undeniably you. I come from a theological background where the uniqueness of me was not cultivated from the leaders and the teachers and the people unpacking God's word. I assumed the future version of me was altogether different. God's going to throw away this hunk of junk, and it's going to be altogether some ghostly figure. And if you read the scriptures, you, if you're in Christ, spend eternity in person with the one who is making you one right now. And it's you, yet it's better you. That's why I said almost unrecognizably new and said it's still That's you. That's the theology of the Bible, is God is taking us at our core and stripping away the stuff that shouldn't be there. If you read the Bible in in terms of themes, this is one of the best ways to kind of get a handle on what this word is doing. If you pick up themes, let's just pick up the the theme of clothing, not styles. Just how does clothing kind of tell the story of the gospel? Genesis 1 and 2, they are naked and unashamed. Okay? Genesis 3, they're clothed with clothes they chose and full of shame. No shame, completely naked. They mess up. They try to solve the problems themselves. They clothe themselves, and yet they are riddled with shame, and they go out, and you know how the rest of the story goes. Fast forward, you get to the very end of the Bible. Revelation 19.7 says this. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Jesus glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, us, the church, has made herself ready. How? Because it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We were naked. We put on clothes that didn't do the job. Revelation, the end of the story, Jesus lets us put on clothes that include our righteous deeds. That is phenomenal. He doesn't just go and dress us like some mom with a toddler. Put this on. We are clothed with the help of the groom with our righteous deeds that he initiated and he sustained. That is a phenomenal picture of marriage, that it gets better that the bad gets removed, that the good comes to light, that you are waiting for a day when you will be unrecognizably new and still absolutely you. That's what Jesus does as our groom. Here's the next thing we see. Jesus nourishes his bride. This is where Paul kind of shifts gears and he kind of camps out on the earthly surface as far as lowercase marriage, but he gets to the same point. Verse 28 says this. In the same way, 
Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He uses a different analogy now. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So he switches analogy, but it's still the same thing. Just like Christ, the real marriage, nourishes and cherishes, cherishes us, the church, that's what good earthly husbands do. So Jesus nourishes his bride. What's the vow I put here? I will take care of the unending checklist life gives you. So much of Jesus' interaction with people is fear of the unknown and fear of not having enough. And he's constantly saying, I'm with you. Cast all your cares on me. I care about you. I'm for you. My favorite imagery in the Bible in terms of how Jesus looks at me, he says, look at the birds of the air. Do you think they're doing anything to impress me to where I should go and serve them? No, they're just birds. And yet I feed every single one of them with more than they need. It's a very true statement. It's, if you notice, there's a lot of birds flying over the roads now, especially Pecos. It's dove season. It's a great time. It's a great time to have a dad, be a dad of boys because you get to take them dove hunting. And you get to teach them how to field dress a dove. You guys want to know how to field dress a dove? It's great. You just stick your thumb in there and rip out the meat you want. It's beautiful. Jude loved it. Here's my point. I was shocked. I'm field dressing. You guys are like, gosh, this guy's gross. It's fun. <laughs> Pull it out. And do you know what's inside of a dove? Outside of the organs, doctors and nurses. There's a lot of food, period. Like so much food, it doesn't fit in the esophagus. It doesn't fit in it. Just so much food these dove have. It's phenomenal. And Jesus says, you see those birds that are flopping around just flying? They have more than they'll ever be able to digest. And then he comes down to us and he says, how much more do I care about you, my bride? I will take care of the checklist of life that just keeps coming at you. Some of us just need to remember that Jesus is with us and he's providing as a good groom would do. And then finally, the other verb in there is, no one ever hates his flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. It's a similar word. It's only used in Thessalonians. In, the, in Thessalonians, it's used for a mother with a nursing child. So it's a more direct attention to an individual. Here's the vow I put with this one. Here's what I think Jesus says to us in the room. I see you, I like you, and I treasure you. Some of us have just camped out on God, so love the world, 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 world. But he's, we have forgotten that Jesus sees us, and he likes us, and he treasures us, his bride. Like a mother with an infant. We have four sons. Three of them we lose track of all the time. And me and my wife could care less. I don't know where they're at in the neighbor's house. There's one kid we never lose track of. Baby Ozzy. Nine month olds. Because we cherish Ozzy. We nourish the other ones. But we cherish sweet little Ozzy. And Jesus does both with his bride. He takes care of us. And he sees us. He likes us. And he treasures us. And then Paul ends his message here on, therefore, 
He zooms all the way back to Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to the wife of his youth, and the two shall become one flesh. Remember, the original plan was oneness, unity. Remember that? That's why Jesus is doing all these things, oneness. That's why Adam was to leave, to become one. And he says, before you camp back out on earthly marriage, let me remind you, verse 32, this mystery is profound. It's a mega mystery. I'm saying that all this refers to Christ and the church. Does Jesus love his bride? Absolutely. We sang a song before the message that's become my favorite song. Oh, praise the name. But there's a, past, there's a verse in there that says, he shall return. In robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. And then if you notice, it doesn't follow immediately with words. Chandler went into instrumental. And what I love is it's a beautiful picture of what this moment should be. Transfix your eyes on Jesus' face, the great and glorious groom. Whether you're married or divorced or ten times divorced, Jesus is the groom. He is the marriage. All other marriages are reflections. Some doing it well, some doing poorly. But Jesus is the marriage between him and the church, us in the room. Transfix your eyes on Jesus' face. And in that song, it goes to instrumental. And it's almost... As if the writer of the song says, now it's up to you to respond. And I loved, I was sitting over there, I heard one voice over here singing, oh, praise the name, and then another one, and then another one. Transfix your eyes on the groom. Sit in this moment, and as your heart's moved, you respond. That's marriage, a groom who is the initiator, the sustainer, the lover, and we get to respond. Let's pray together. God, thank you for images. God, thank you especially for images that don't just stay images in our head, but are images that we get to live out and see lived out in terms of this reality of marriage, of the perfect son leaving his perfect home to become one with his wife, us the church. God, I know that in this room, the mention of marriage evokes all sort of emotion. But God, just for a moment, help us to see the bigness and the beauty of marriage. Help us to see that you are swinging for the fences when it comes to marriage because it is the picture of you becoming one with us, your church. God, help us in the remaining moments to transfix our eyes on you. We love you. Amen.